Thank you, Kenny, worship team. I am um, not gonna grab my Bible because my Bible, the print is too small for me. <laughs> so I printed up the text, 14 point type. <laughs> uh, good morning, nine o'clockers. Um, so this morning, uh, I had to, um, I got up had to decide what to have for breakfast, uh, what to wear, should I wear jeans, should I wear slacks, and I decided on jeans, uh, and some pretty mundane stuff like everybody else here, right? Um, because all of us, every day, every week, um, we face a myriad of decisions, most of them pretty insignificant. Uh, maybe some of them uh, throughout the week, not so insignificant. Um, but I suppose it's true, uh, we probably face only a small handful of life-changing, destiny-determining kinds of questions in our life, right? Well, the passage we are going to look at this morning confronts us with the most important question any of us will ever face. And if you haven't wrestled with it yet, you're going to this morning. So I'm going to pray, read the passage, and get to it. Father, we just sung about your word breaking up stony ground. And I was reminded of your words through, through Jeremiah. Is not my word like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces? Lord, break our hearts this morning, including my own, in your son's name, amen. So the passage is Luke chapter seven, 18 through 35, and I will read it. John's disciples told him about all these things the miraculous healings and such of the previous chapters. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness, uh, evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were, were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palace, says but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way for you. I tell you, among those born of women, 
No one is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But... Wisdom is proved right by all her children. So, first, a little context. Okay, John the Baptist is in prison. And remember, he's called the Baptist not because he belonged to a particular denomination, but because he just went around dunking people, right? That was his thing, and so he, uh, he earned this nickname. Um, anyway, um, it's hard to overestimate his significance, as Jesus in this passage, right, makes clear. Um, all the Gospels begin with John, tell of his huge following, um, connect him to Jesus as the Messiah's forerunner. Um, he comes on the scene in the desert, this sort of a apocalyptic firebrand, um, telling of an impending judgment. Um, a day of wrath. The, the axe, he says, is at the root of the tree, folks. Forest is going to fall. The one coming after me is gonna clear the threshing floor. He's gonna cast the chaff into the furnace and burn it with unquenchable fire. Not a feel-good preacher, right? But... Everybody wanted to hear John. Um, they came out in droves. Um, the common folk, uh, soldier type folks, religious folks, even Herod Antipas ruling type folks. Um, and he was a little bit weird, right? He lived on locusts, wild honey, dressed in camel hair, but he cast a long shadow. Twice in the book of Acts, we meet followers of John the Baptist who hadn't got the message yet that John was actually pointing to someone else. Josephus, a Jewish historian of this period, doesn't tell us anything about Paul, but he tells the story of John the Baptist. And John wasn't afraid of speaking the truth to power. And when he did that, 
with Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, calling out his adultery, it landed him in jail, um, and that where, is where he is when he sends two of his disciples to um, ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? You see, um, John seems to be a little confused. Um, he's heard the reports of uh, Jesus' teaching the multitudes, healing the sick, raising the dead, um, which Luke has detailed for us uh, in pre- pre- preceding chapters, and it appears he was expecting someone else, someone a little different. Jesus did not conform to his expectations, and John is, I think, um, genuinely bewildered, right? And there's little conjecture involved in um, uh, piecing together the profile of the kind of person John was likely expecting. John's own message, right, of an impending display of God's wrath, you know, leveling forests, consuming the unrighteous. This is of a piece with messianic expectations we find uh, throughout this period, various group, various layers of literature. Um, And as a New Testament historian, um, I'd love to walk you through some of this material, but... uh, We have more important matters to attend to, especially that hugely important question. Suffice it to say that the vision of the prophets who looked forward to the vindication of Israel by God's Davidic Messiah, that that branch from the stump of Jesse, this vision just pulsated, you know, like an electric current through the people. Um, but seems so far removed from their lived daily reality with their necks clamped under the yoke of Roman rule. Uh, But even Jesus' own disciples, you have to remember, struggled to get their minds around Jesus' mission. So at the end of Luke, the risen yet um, sort of incognito Jesus Um, comes up to two of his disciples who are making their way to Emmaus from Jerusalem right after uh, the crucifixion. Their faces are downcast and they explain, Jesus of Nazareth, a powerful prophet in, in word and deed, was sentenced to death and crucified, but we thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. They didn't get it. Right? Uh, their, expectation, their expectations of Jesus' mission, the redemption of Israel, um, uh, wasn't, quite, uh, wasn't quite the same as how that plan of God's redemption was actually unfolding in front of them. And they weren't prepared for it. Um, at the opening of Acts, the apostles, the apostles, Um, Those who had been chosen by Jesus, those who had traveled with Jesus, heard him teach, watched him heal, received private instruction, right? Those guys, they're gathered around the risen Jesus as he's about ready to ascend to the Father, and what do they they ask him? Lord, is it now you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? (sighs) 
So given this, <clears throat> given this widespread expectation, this, uh, this deep longing for God to intervene in Israel's uh, you know, political fortunes, I think, I think John's uh, confusion is understandable. Um, so Jesus answers John's messengers, perhaps to our ears, in a way that is um, somewhat cryptic. Uh, he says, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Good news is preached to the poor. So Jesus wants his actions to confirm his identity. And what he gives John is virtually a checklist from Isaiah concerning the arrival of the, of the Messiah and the Messianic era. Let's look at a few um, sound bites from Isaiah. So you have uh, Jesus' words to the messengers on the left and uh, some text from Isaiah on the right. Uh, just briefly, the deaf will hear, the eyes of the blind will see, the humble will rejoice, the needy will rejoice. Isaiah 35, again, the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the, the lame will leap. 26, your dead will live, their bodies will rise. 61, Ah, the Lord anointed me to pr proclaim good news to the poor. Bind up the brokenhearted. Freedom for the captives. Set free from darkness the prisoners. Now, to John, raised in a priestly family, whose father served regularly in the temple, right? Um, there was probably nothing cryptic about Jesus' message at all. The time is now. The day is here, John. Yet, Jesus adds this sobering warning. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now the idea behind the word translated by the NIV there, stumble, is to take offense at and turn away. And that is the temptation when we ask that crucial question, who are you, Jesus? And we don't like the answer. In the modern context, what we do is we just remake Jesus into someone who conforms to our um, ideas and expectations and hence turn away. So if you want a Republican Jesus, he's out there. If, if you want a Democrat Jesus, he's out there. If you want a green or an affirming Jesus, he's there. If you want a capitalist Jesus, who will allow you to displace your tenants to keep your rents at market rate. He's out there and he's been in my Twitter feed last week. <laughs> Kid you not.
If you want a Jesus who will give you fortunes, wealth, success, a happy life, he's there. If you want a Jesus who will allow you to turn your back on the harassed, hungry masses fleeing poverty and oppression in various parts of the world, some currently at our southern border, sadly, he's there too. In the scholarly world where I hang out, Jesus is often a simple Jewish sage whose whose message was just distorted by Paul in the early church. Or a misguided apocalyptic prophet um, who fell afoul of the Roman authorities and you know suffered the understandable consequence, etc. Now, such construals like this um, are almost always the result of focusing on a few elements of Jesus' message and just ignoring the bits that don't fit. The Messiah that John seems to be looking for is the coming judge who will usher in the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that guy is in the pages of Isaiah as well. The one he seems in danger of missing is the one who attends to the sick, the outcast, the poor, Jesus' message to John is essentially this. Read more carefully, friend. Recalibrate your expectations accordingly. And John is not the only one who is um, asking this question in Luke's story. Who is Jesus? In fact, Luke has constructed his narrative Um, so that this question just sort of punctuates the drama during Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. That's between chapters three and chapter nine before the story takes this decisive turn and Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem. Um, And Luke is such an interesting storyteller. He, He frames this material, all these questions. Who are you, Jesus? With, um, with two divine pronouncements on either end of Jesus' identity, which we, the readers here, but most of the characters in the narrative do not. This is my son. The baptism in chapter three, the transfiguration in chapter nine. And in between these events, Everyone seems to be trying to figure out who this guy is as Jesus continually confuses and confounds expectations. So in Nazareth, chapter four, Jesus announces his ministry under the banner of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, set the oppressed free. And he is dismissed with the question, Isn't this the carpenter's son? Now, note Luke's irony. Just after the divine pronouncement, this is my son, his own town folks write him off as the carpenter's son. Next, Jesus extends uh, forgiveness to a well-known local sinner and... um, 
The other guests at the Pharisee's uh, banquet, um, obviously offended, ask, who is this that he forgives sins? Um, Jesus calms a storm and his terrified disciples ask, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Herod Antipas hears all these things that Jesus is doing and becomes, as the text says, greatly perplexed and asks, who is this I hear such things about? Um, and this, this motif is brought to a moving and dramatic climax in chapter nine when Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they reply, well, some say John the Baptist or, or one of the other prophets. And then zeroing in on the crucial question, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are God's Messiah. Boom! Jesus says, good. Now we can head to Jerusalem where I'm gonna get killed because the journey to the cross begins with that confession. The disciples hadn't got it all figured out by a long shot as the rest of the story makes clear. But the crucial question had been answered and that question has faced every generation since and confronts every person sitting in this room or on the patio or listening to me from somewhere else. I am 59 years old. I've been a follower of Jesus around 50 years, long enough to know that there are some people sitting here listening to me this morning who are still wrestling with that question. And I want you to know, you are in good company. John the Baptist. <laughs> Right, representing the climax of the prophetic office. On the herald of the Messiah, he had his doubts as well. The one whom Jesus calls the greatest among those born of women had to bring his hopes and expectations in line with God's mysterious way of bringing about that redemption that John was so eagerly looking for. And if all those episodes that Luke records of people asking this question teach us anything, it's this. Jesus is never the one you're expecting, but he's always the one you are looking for. And to bring this point home to his listeners, Jesus did what Jesus loved to do. He told a story, okay? And we call these parables. And this was Jesus' jam, right? It was a distinctive feature of his teaching that his audiences found riveting. Okay, common everyday scenes, mundane characters animate his stories. Um, a widow, a judge, a farmer, a thief, a neighbor who wakes you up in the middle of the night. Um, animals too, sheep, 
goats, fish, birds, and plants, um, vineyards, weeds, fig trees, mustard seeds. Oh, lots of seeds. Uh, seeds that grow into trees, seeds that grow into weeds, seeds that grow into lots of other plants bearing lots of other seeds, seeds that grow mysteriously and nobody knows how. <laughs> Jesus loved seeds. And Luke loved Jesus' parables. Uh, in fact, he includes more parables than any other gospel. 25 by my count. 16 are completely unique to Luke, found only in his gospel. And we've already encountered one of them, um, the parable of the wise and foolish builders in chapter six. Here we find the second, and there's a lot more ahead of us. So, because these are so important, in Luke's gospel, and so fundamental to Jesus' method and his message, and just so flippin' interesting. Uh, I'm gonna pause for just a couple minutes and uh, walk into them, reflect on them, so that as we encounter them, um, we, we better appreciate the, uh, the beauty, the humor, the irony, the prophetic poignancy of these short stories by Jesus as the title of a recent book put them. All right, now Jesus' message uh, was full of imagery, right? Okay, Um, symbolism, metaphor, figures of speech, um, aphorisms, and, and so parables are a part of that. But we distinguish parables as a literary type, um, by three elements. Hope you can read that. First, um, they're narratives. That is, they're they're telling a story as opposed to simply employing metaphorical language, right? Um, Some are rather short, like the parable we're gonna look at today, the children in the marketplace, but some are rather long, like um, the parable of the prodigal son in chapter 15. Second, they are fictitious. Jesus isn't referring to an actual um, uh, Samaritan who helped a, travel, a wounded traveler, nor an actual real woman who lost a coin, etc. Um, rather, he uses these stock characters and common circumstances um, familiar to everyone so that his stories would have this uh, universal relatableness, right? Um, finally, these stories weren't meant to entertain, although some of them are funny, um, nor even to inform, but to communicate an important ethical, moral principle. Now, um, as you can imagine, scholars have been studying Jesus' parables for hundreds of years, I guess millennia probably, Um, But about 90 years ago, a British scholar named C.H. Dodd came up with a definition that everybody just keeps coming back to because it just so nicely summarizes all the crucial elements. So here it is. He writes, at its simplest, a parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness 
and leaving the mind into sufficient doubt as to its precise application to tease it into active thought. Right? Okay, arresting, arresting the listener by vividness or strangeness. You see, there's often something weird going on in these stories. I mean, if you find a treasure in the field, why not just take the treasure? Why go buy the field first, right? And who would ever come to a wedding banquet, you know, improperly attired? Um, what father <laughs> would ever just sort of hand over his inheritance prematurely to an irresponsible son? You, you just don't do that kind of thing. Um, but what happens? The mind is teased into active thought, uh, not necessarily about treasures and banquets and wayward sons, but about the kingdom, okay? So a, a person pulling weeds um, is reminded of that story about that nasty fellow who sowed weeds in his neighbor's field. And they think that somehow the kingdom of God is like wheat and weeds growing up together. Hmm. The young maiden, uh, her wedding night, uh, reminds her uh, bridesmaids with a laugh, and don't forget to bring enough oil for your lamps. <laughs> As she muses, like those foolish bridesmaids who weren't ready when the bridegroom returned. Um, pulling in his dragnet, sorting his fish, the fisherman thinks, yeah, the kingdom of God, is, it's like this. So, uh, to illustrate, to dramatize uh, this dilemma of conflicting expectation. Jesus, excuse me, Jesus tells uh, a story about children's playing, children playing games in the marketplace. Again, um, a very familiar site in antiquity where there was no public education. Um, parents who worked in the marketplace selling goods and services or employed in other fashion would often bring their kids in tow and just uh, let them entertain themselves as, as best they could. In fact, in these ancient cities, Ephesus, Pompeii, um, others, we find their games etched in the pavement where children for generations must have just gathered and passed the time. So I'm going to read this story again, and I'm actually going to begin with verses um, 28, 29, and 30, um, which represent um, a parenthetical observation by Luke uh, concerning Jesus' lofty evaluation of John. Verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words concerning John, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, Ah, to what can I compare this generation of people? What are they like? They are like children sitting in a marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the pipe for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge. You did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton, drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. But 
Wisdom is proved right by all her children. Now, as Professor Dodd warned, there is some doubt as to the precise application of this um, parable, uh, particularly um, the children um, in the marketplace. Who do they represent? Um, Jesus and John or those contemporaries who rejected the message of Jesus and John, and scholarship's actually pretty divided on this question, but um, I don't want that to distract us because everyone agrees that the main point of the parable is pretty clear, and it's this. No matter how God's kingdom approaches them, be it through the austerity and woes of John's message or the good news and joy of Jesus' proclamation, nothing will penetrate a heart that has already, quote, rejected God's purposes, as Luke puts it. Now, when we hear a parable, it's usually pretty easy for us to identify the targets of the parable. Here, they're explicitly stated, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, um, to shake our heads and then to identify with the other group. But a parable is like a scalpel. And in order for the scalpel to do its work, we have to strap ourselves to the operating table and let the surgeon cut. We have to hear this from the vantage point of the people it was intended to pierce. So, you see, the manner of Jesus and John's message was very different, but uh, the point of the message, the baseline message was identical, and it was this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near, and that is the purpose of God that the religious experts rejected. Now, um, there is an important sense in which repentance, turning from sin to Jesus is that sort of singular decisive turning point, uh, uh, marking one's entrance to the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, the journey to the cross begins. And yet there's another important sense in which repentance is the, it's, it's the air that a disciple, a follower of Jesus just breathes uh, one of my friends, um, a pastor in Hyderabad, India, posted this on Facebook a couple days ago. A Christian is not someone who ceases to sin, but someone who never ceases to repent. Now, for some of you, this parable may be challenging you to put away your pipes, your song and dance, your excuses, the avoidance. Take up your cross, follow Jesus to make that decision. Others, however, may be already followers of Jesus who are just wasting away with a gnawing guilt of unrepented, unconfessed sin. As I said, I've been a Christian you know, maybe 50 years and I've, I've, I've known more stories like this than I could recount. 
believers hobbling through life, smiling, pretending, hiding, groaning. But it doesn't have to be that way. You see, there are actually two groups of children in this story, in this text. The children in the marketplace, playing their games, making their excuses, ignoring the heralds of the kingdom, and the children of mother wisdom in the final verse, whose path is very different. Who are you? Who am I? That is the question that this parable leaves with us.